Hi, folks. Welcome to Strange Studies and Strange Stories. We're going to get rolling on a month of science fiction in a moment, but even though we no longer go by the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, we still want to let you know when cool things are happening in the worlds of H.P. Lovecraft, and that includes a new game on Steam called Dreams in the Witch House. That's right. Atomic Brain Games brings you this point-and-click adventure in an open RPG that is an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's Dreams in the Witch House. You guide Walter Gilman as he prepares to face the dreaded May Eve witch ritual in legend-haunted You go about this in the game by exploring old rumors, reading forbidden books at Miskatonic University, and finally completing that occult thesis. Otherworldly threats slowly intensify as the game progresses. It's a game for the PC, we should say that. Yes, that's right. Uh, It gives you 10 to 20 hours of playtime, done in the style of a point-and-click adventure, the ones like Day of the Tentacle, Grim Fandango, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. It also has an original score by friend of the show, Troy Sterling Neese. Yeah. Many know him from his work on the Dark Adventure Radio Theater presentation. We used his film score on our Whisper in Darkness episodes. He's the best. Yes. VulgarNight.com says the delivery complements the source material with some excellent pacing, a fantastic score, and plenty of opportunities to defy fate. Mm. Highly recommended for Lovecraft fans. The Gamer says mixing RPG and survival elements with standard point-and-click gameplay leads to a tense, uncomfortable experience that (laughs) totally works. While Adventure Gamers wrote a masterly and compelling rendering of H.P. Lovecraft's horror universe. Check it out on Steam. Or I guess if you're too scared, you could just not check it out. Dreams in the Witch House on Steam, buy it or else. And now on to the adventures of Steena the Spacer. In all cats are gray. Strange studies of strange stories. Steena of the Spaceways. That sounds like a corny title for one of the stellar veto spreads. I ought to know. I've tried my hand at writing enough of them. Only this Steena was no glamour babe. She was as colorless as a lunar plant. Even the hair netted down to her skull had a sort of grayish cast, and I never saw her but once draped in anything but a shapeless and baggy gray space all. Stina was strictly background stuff, and that is where she mostly spent her free hours. In the smelly, smoky background corners of any stellar port dive frequented by free spacers. If you really looked for her, you could spot her. Just sitting there listening to the talk. Listening and remembering. She didn't open her own mouth often, but when she did, spacers had learned to listen, and the lucky few who heard her rare spoken words, these will never forget Stina. Who can forget Stina? You know, one time I left my wallet at a cafe, Hmm? and you know who picked it up, dropped it off at my house? Stina. (laughs) Really? And back in my dating days, there was this girl that broke my heart, and you know who stayed up with me all night when I was crying my eyes out, rubbing my back? Stina. <laughs> wow. Back rubs. Yeah. And that guy that I killed. Remember that? You know who helped me bury the body and cover up the evidence? Stina. Uh, well, that's amazing because <laughs> Stina is a character in this week's story. All Cats Are Gray by Andrew North. I.e. she doesn't exist in the real world. So I would be worried about you having this relationship with Stina, a fictional character, except I'm a little more concerned that you just admitted to murder. Did I? Yeah, I think you said something like, that that guy I killed? Well, I didn't say who that guy was, so you can't have a murder without a victim. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Guess it'll have to remain a mystery. Here's a mystery that I can <laughs> solve for you. Andrew North, yeah. author of today's story, that's actually a pen name for science fiction writer Andre Alice Norton. Oh, good. Because we're doing science fiction this month. In fact, we are. we're pulling a few stories from the anthology The Future is Female, edited by Lisa Yasek. And this story is in there from 1953, and since Andre Norton is a woman, it all makes sense now. That's one mystery solved. Here's another one. 
Who is that reader? Why, that reader was Andrew Staten joining <gasps> us once again. <sighs> He's the best. Andrew's an actor and all-around geek, his words, living in Los Angeles, regularly available for work, including voiceover. You can find him under Strength24 on Twitch, where he regularly streams indie horror games on Thursday evenings at 8 p.m. Pacific time. He constantly has to remember to wear the brown pants, as chat will do their best to scare the hell out of him. (laughs) Wait, did did you just get the hell scared out of you? I just did by hearing about people getting scared. It scared me. So empathetic. Thank you, Andrew. (laughs) And of course, my name is Chad Pfeiffer. Oh, and I'm Chris Lackey. You are joining us here on Strange Studies of Strange Stories. This is our free show for the month of April. If you like what you hear, come find us at patreon.com slash witchhousemedia and subscribe. We do six shows a month on all the best classic genre fiction. And when you subscribe, you get access to over 700 episodes in our back catalog from this show and the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Mm -hmm. However, in all of those episodes, we never covered anything by Andre Norton. What do we know about this author? Born Alice Mary Norton in 1912 in Cleveland, Ohio. In high school, she was the literary page editor for the school newspaper, and she wrote her first novel, Railstone Luck, when she was in high school as well, which she eventually published in 1938. She went on to university to study teaching, but dropped out and ended up working for the public library. She was really into fantasy and science fiction, and she legally changed her name to Andre Alice Norton to try to sell more stories. Because it sounded like a man's name? Yeah. She was a librarian for much of her life while she was publishing, 18 years in the Cleveland library system alone. I was reading this interview with her from 1996 in which she said this. To me, the sense of wonder means that a book becomes so alive to someone that they remember it for a long time afterwards. I remember experiencing it when I first read The Face in the Abyss by A. Merritt. I would buy thrilling wonder stories, planet stories, amazing stories, astounding stories, and others. This was in the days when one had to hide these types of magazines because they were considered by some to be so trashy that a person would not want to be seen in public with them. Some of my favorite writers of that era were Eric Frank Russell, Edmund Hamilton, we haven't read those guys, Mm -hmm. Lee Brackett, C.L. Moore, those we have read, Mm -hmm. and others. The biggest bookshop in Cleveland also had a sales table where they placed books that hadn't sold during the Christmas season. One book, which I recognized right away, was The Outsider and Others by H.P. Lovecraft. The first Arkham House book was priced at $1.50. I bought it and still have it today. Nice. That's awesome. So I think Norton would would be right at home on our show. Something else in that interview that struck me as interesting. She said, I was a children's librarian at the Cleveland Public Library for over 20 years from 1930 to 1951. Mm. Each month, the librarians would receive a book to review. If there was some objection to the book and we still wanted it, we would have an opportunity to defend it. I remember getting The Hobbit and nobody had heard of Tolkien, so I had to argue for it like mad. Imagine being a children's librarian and having to make an argument for putting The the Hobbit in your library. Yeah. I mean, The Hobbit wasn't always The Hobbit. It was just The Hobbit. But what was it about it that made people go, no, pass? I don't know. She she had another book that she had to uh, argue for that was called like The Moon is Hell. And I get that because hell's in the title sure. or whatever. But the Tolkien, I don't understand. She had her first book published in 1934, a young adult historical fiction book called The Prince Commands, Being Sundry Adventures of Michael Carl, Sometime Crown Prince and Pretender to the Throne of Morvania. That is a long title for a book. <laughs> and for a bit, she worked at the Library of Congress from 1940 to 1941. She had her first sci-fi story published in 1947 in the inaugural fantasy book magazine. It was called, the story, The People of the Crater. I wonder if working for the Library of Congress is sort of like the Hollywood for librarians, you know? Oh, yeah. Getting on the road and trying to get a job at the Library of Congress. (laughs) 
<laughs> we know a few librarians, so we should ask them. We should. However, by 1958, she became a full-time writer, and she has written tons of short stories and novels. She was nominated twice for Hugo's, three times for World Fantasy Award, and got the Lifetime Achievement uh, in 1998. I read that she worked with Robert Block on a book called The Jekyll Legacy, or The Jekyll Legacy, if you yeah. want to be that kind of guy, mm -hmm. which I do. Uh, they did alternating chapters where she wrote from a woman's point of view, and he wrote from a man's point of view. She also talked in that interview about hanging out with Arthur C. Clarke. It seems like Andre knew everybody. Yes, she was a founding member of the Swordsmen and Sorcerers Guild of America with Lynn Carter. Wow. As far as I can tell, her best-known novel is called Witch World. Witch World, as in a world of delicious witches. I, You know, that's a fantasy novel. Yeah. I saw the Ace paperback cover. I looked it up, and there's a guy dressed like a toucan. He's like in a bird costume holding a ray gun. Mm -hmm. There's a big castle in the background, which I guess is where the witches live. I don't know. <laughs> but it yeah. says, one man against a wonder planet. It's not what I thought a witch world type book would be. Wait, there's a planet of witches. I guess it's a whole planet of witches. And then, and I, I had read in the synopsis that he was some World War II soldier who got transported to it. What? Some mystical John Carter of Mars type way. I don't know why he's got a ray gun, but it looks pretty good. I, You know, a guy in a toucan suit, I'm sold. <laughs> I just looked up the picture. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you have described it accurately. I don't yep. understand. I'm not making that up. But I want to know more. She was a force of nature, this woman. J.M. Cornwell called her the grand dame of science fiction and fantasy. She has more than 300 titles published over, the, over at least 60 years of being alive and a writer. They even created an award in her name, the Andre Norton Award for Young Adult Literature and check this out, she gamed with Gygax in 1976. In Wisconsin terms, that's the biggest deal of them all. Yeah. They just had uh, GaryCon not far from here in Lake Geneva last week, which I think is like an old school D&D convention. I don't know if if it's a, it's not every role-playing game, is it? It's just. I don't know. I know that Gen Con started off yeah. in Lake Geneva. Right, right. And now is in Indianapolis. I guess there's still a convention going on in Lake Geneva. There is, yeah. This, But I think it is mostly focused on old D&D, which is cool. Now, after this game, she wrote a novel called Quag Keep. I've got a short synopsis from Wikipedia. I just want to read it to you. Martin, a player in a game of Dungeons and Dragons, touches a figurine of a warrior and is unwillingly transported into the body of Milo Jagan, a warrior of the city of Greyhawk. Milo slash Martin gradually meets others likewise transported to this world. Bound together by forces they don't understand, the players struggle to trust one another. Under the compulsion of a Gaius, everyone is forced to go on a quest. They eventually confront the one controlling them, the Game Master, and battle with him to regain control of their lives. Although they win, they find they cannot return to reality and must remain in Greyhawk. Rather than splitting up, they realize they make a good team and decide to continue their adventures together. That sounds a lot like the Dungeons and Dragons cartoons. That's what from I was thinking. 80s. I was the exact same thing. It sounds like that's where they kind of stole the idea for that show from. I know there's a D&D &D movie out, but I kind of always wish they would make that story because I think that it brings in what's cool about tabletop role-playing games, like that idea of going into the game. Yeah. I always thought it was just a neat Neat premise. I haven't seen the movie yet, but I'm looking forward to it. The well, maybe they do that. Maybe Chris Pine's on a roller coaster. And yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I don't know. <laughs> yes, I do know that uh, there is an Easter egg in the movie, or at least it was in the trailer, where the characters mm. from the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon are in the background in a scene. They're all standing together. Oh, for real? Yeah. See, I'm going to go see it now. <laughs> That's enough. That's all I needed. In the early 2000s, she and author Gene Rabe were going to write a sequel, but unfortunately, Norton died in 2005 at the age 
of 93. Good honor. I mean, typically when we get to that part of the bio, it's always a little sad. Mm -hmm. We're like, okay, let's get into the story because that bummed me out. But making it to 93 is pretty amazing. Oh, and she was still kicking ass up until then. She was ready to do another book. I'm sure that if she heard me saying, ah, that's good enough for you, she'd be like, screw off. (laughs) I could have used another 10 years, another 20. (laughs) This story, All Cats Are Gray, was first published in the August-September 1953 issue of Fantastic Universe Science Fiction Magazine. Speaking of odd uh, art on covers, I looked up that specific issue that this was Mm -hmm. in, and it has uh, the Statue of Liberty half buried in the sand on the cover. Mm. This may be 10 years before the publication of the book, Planet of the Apes. So I'm not sure if it's related or what story is being illustrated, but I just found that curious Yeah, as an image. I didn't know much about this one going in other than it was like a swashbuckling Star Wars-y kind of space adventure. Mm-hmm. And that seemed like a good way to shake off those Draculas from last month. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just totally different. It's a weird title, though. Uh, it sounded familiar to me. Well, the phrase all cats are gray is in full all cats are gray in the dark, which is a reference to having sex with someone that is not attractive or of a lower station than you. And it Mm. seems to be a UK thing. And also there's a French version of the phrase, which means the same thing. I mean, I've heard it before because it's a song by The Cure, which I'm sure you've heard as well. Mm. Although I looked up the lyrics to that song. It has nothing to do with Stina of the Spaceways. (laughs) I think probably the phrase has some non-sexual connotations as well, i.e. we're all the same when you strip away appearances or infrared vision, we're all gray. But it's a weird one. You know, I had black cats and they did not look gray in the dark. They, They just looked more black. By the way, if all cats are gray in the dark, dark would yeah. be no light. So you couldn't see it at all. There's a lot of problems already <laughs> with the saying. Also, why are you having sex with cats? That's illegal. Wait, no, 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 no. That's not. Anyway. Especially cats below your station. <laughs> <laughs> this story is not about any of that. It no. has a cat in it and there is a lack of color and that's all you're going to get. The title is a clue to the conclusion of the story, as we'll see. Now, the blurb in the magazine before the story in Fantastic Universe is definitely not something that you would see today. Mm -hmm. It has some antiquated phrases in it. It says, under normal conditions, a whole person has a decided advantage over a handicapped one. But out in deep space, the normal may be reversed for humans at any rate. Yeah. Uh, A whole person, the normal, (laughs) handicapped, you know. But maybe a person with a disability will feature in this story, I thought, and demonstrate why you shouldn't say they're not a whole person, because they will have an unforeseen advantage as a result of the perceived disability. Mm -hmm. And that definitely is the idea of the story. I thought it could have been a little stronger with the specificity of the disability, but let's get into it. All right. The narrator is talking about this woman, Stina. She's a working class space woman. Not pretty, but dependable and likes to keep in the background. And she hangs out in space dive bars. She didn't open her mouth often, but when she did, spacers listened. She's a respected older woman, and I'm guessing that she's older because they refer to her hair having a grayish cast to it. Not a typical protagonist for a 1950s sci-fi story. No, she's kind of like the Millennium Falcon of characters, too, the way it just the way you said that. Not pretty, but dependable. <laughs> the pulpy writing in the opening certainly told me I was reading a pulp 1950s sci-fi story, even if the character's a little off sure. for what we would normally get. The narrator is a pulp writer. It says, I've tried my hand at writing these stellar veto spreads, and maybe not successfully, I thought. <laughs> it doesn't say that he published them. No. Even little things in that beginning, like she didn't open her own mouth often, made me want to get my red <laughs> pen out and slice some words. <laughs> Did you have to say her own mouth? Is she opening other people's mouths? Quibbles, but you know, yeah. seemed like this thing might have been 
dashed off quickly. Or maybe she's trying to really capture this character of the narrator, that he is pulpy and he oh, does yeah. write silly things. Yeah, so, that's a good point. I haven't read the rest of her stuff, so I'm not sure. She drifted from port to port, taking whatever work floated her way. She helped lots of people over the years, and she is very respected. She's an expert operator on the big calculators, it says, so she can work anywhere. And I know that's computers, but I was imagining gigantic Texas Instruments calculators floating through space. Nice. You know, maybe saddled up with a space cowboy on them for some reason. It says, but it was Stina who told Bub Nelson about the Joven moon rites, and her warning saved Bub's life six months later. It was Stina who identified the piece of stone Keen Clark was passing around a table one night, rightly calling it unworked slitite. That started a rush which made ten fortunes overnight for men who were down to their last jets. So she knows stuff. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't need to profit from it. She'll go ahead and pass that information out to the betterment of others. Yeah. I'm goofing on the writing a bit, but I, I really do like this character. In a genre full of Zap Brannigans, it's cool to have an older woman who fades in the background and knows things. Yeah, she's cool. Now, the narrator says that she cracked the case of the Empress of Mars. And that's the story we're going to get. Normally, she wouldn't take money for any advice that she gives. But this guy, Bub Nelson, gave her a gray cat called Bat for helping him out. It was in a dive bar called Freefall. And I I like this introduction here. It says, about a year after the Joven affair, he walked into the Freefall one night and dumped Bat down on her table. Bat looked at Stina and growled. She looked calmly back at him and nodded once. From then on, they traveled together, the thin gray woman and the big gray tomcat. That's great. And I also (laughs) like that when she does help people out, she doesn't take money. That's very A-team, 80s action show, roaming Mm -hmm. from port to port, having episodic adventures, but doing things because you want to set stuff right, not for pay. You know, I'm sure at some point, Cena had to fight off some galactic developers who were trying to get Mm -hmm. some alien race to sell their land. I'm sure that even in space they had Uzis. But as the author says, this is really the story of Stina, Bat, Cliff Moran, and the Empress of Mars, a story which is already a legend of the spaceways, and it's a damn good story, too. I ought to know, having framed the first version of it myself, (laughs) i.e. somebody had to rewrite it for him. (laughs) (laughs) Now that we have this set up, the narrator gets into the story. It's Stina, Bat, and this guy Cliff Morton. They're at the Rigel Royal, another space bar. Cliff has had a run of bad luck and is drinking it up until he runs out of what little cash that he has left. He is on the verge of losing his ship to creditors. It all began on the night that Cliff Moran blew in looking lower than an Ant-Man's belly and twice as nasty. He'd had a (laughs) spell of luck foul enough to twist a man into a slug snake, and we all knew there was an attachment out for his ship, (laughs) Ant-Belly. Stina, with bat around her shoulders, comes up to him. She explains that the Empress of Mars is going to appear again. Now, this is an old derelict pleasure cruise spaceship that for the last 50 years has been on this huge orbit, wide orbit, and it comes around like clockwork. People have tried to claim it in the past, but nobody has. Those who ventured into her either vanished or returned swiftly without any believable explanation of what they had seen, wanting only to get away from her as quickly as possible. The Empress of Mars was just about the biggest prize a spacer could aim for, which is a great setup. We have all our basic setups on this show in general, an inherited mansion, somebody walking across the moors, etc. But now that we're strange stories and we can do science fiction, we can add to that derelict spacecraft Mm -hmm. as a setup. I also like that people traveling in space are called spacers. (laughs) When I sent the readings over to Andrew, I It says in the first paragraph that she wears a shapeless and baggy gray space all. And just in case he didn't get to read the story before recording, which is sometimes the case, I have to explain and give context to things. So I had to write, just so you understand, space alls are the same as coveralls or overalls, but in space. 
<laughs> Steeda is keyed on trying to help Cliff claim this prize, and he's desperate enough to agree. The next day, they're off to get that ship. The narrator says the rest of the story came to me in pieces months later and in another port half the system away. Cliff takes off to find the Empress that night on Steena's tip, and he's got people after a ship, so, you know, he's got to go as soon as he can. Mm-hmm. while he's got it. And Steena and Bat apparently just stow away on the ship. He's flying towards the Empress of Mars and they walk into the bridge and say, hey, what's <laughs> up? But, you know, typically she wouldn't cash in on one of her own tips, as we said, but he's not going to argue having her on board is going to be helpful. Now, when they find the ship, they're surprised to see that the lights are on and it's not totally dead in space. Cliff attaches the magnetic lines and they board the ship. It still has life support and there's still air on board, which is very strange. There's the faint smell of corruption in the air and Bat sniffing like crazy. They split up and have a look around. It's sort of like the Titanic Mm. in that the passengers were extremely wealthy. All their goods are still around. There's doubtless a candelabra sticking out of the treasure somewhere. As Dan Pratt says, uh, candelabras (laughs) are to treasure what baguettes are to groceries. (laughs) It's the thing that sticks out to let you know what's inside. Steena goes into one of the rooms and she sees all these amazing silks and opulence. There was a lavish display of silks trailing out of two travel kits on the floor, a dressing table crowded with crystal and jeweled containers, along with other lures for the female, which drew Steena in. That sort of surprised me because she doesn't seem like the type Hmm. to care about that kind of stuff. As she looks, she sees something. She pretends not to see anything and she picks up this bottle of perfume. A bracelet on the bed rises up and then it just drops back onto the bed. Bat starts hissing. What the heck is going on here? She put down the bottle. Then she did something which perhaps few of the men she had listened to through the years could have done. She moved without hurry or sign of disturbance on a tour about the room. And although she approached the bed, she did not touch the jewels. She could not force herself to that. There is some sort of invisible presence in the room, but she is able to play it cool. The thing leaves the room, or at least she thinks it does, because Bat follows it and she follows Bat. Yeah, Bat is howling at this thing intermittently. It says, Steena strolled behind him, holding her pace to the unhurried gait of an explorer. What sped before them both was invisible to her, but Bat was never baffled by it. They must have gone into the control cabin almost on the heels of the Unseen, if the Unseen had heels, <laughs> which there is good reason to doubt. Woo. Oh my goodness, a creature with no heels? <laughs> Get me off this ship! <laughs> she enters the control room. Cliff is there working, trying to get the ship back in order. To human eyes, they were alone in the cabin, but Bat still followed a moving something with his gaze. And it is something which he had at last made up his mind to distrust and dislike. For now, he took a step or two forward and spat, his loathing made plain by every raised hair along his spine. And in that same moment, Steena saw a flicker, a flicker of vague outline against Cliff's hunched shoulders, as if the invisible one had crossed the space between them. There's a mystery, which was kind of hard to figure out. It says, but why had it been revealed against Cliff and not against Mm. the back of one of the seats or against the panels, the walls of the corridor, or the cover of the bed where it had reclined and played with its loot? What could Bat see? So it's invisible in front of all of these other things, but not Cliff's gray space all? Is his space all gray? I'm not sure. It just says a flicker of vague outline against Cliff's hunched yeah. shoulders, so I'm, I'm not sure. Now, Steena has a plan. She takes off her space alls and she puts them on the back of the chair. Bat is going nuts, howling and spitting, and Cliff, he finally takes notice of this. She asks Cliff for his blaster, and he calmly hands it over to her. Just stay where you are, she warned. Back, Bat. Bring it back. With a last, throat-splitting screech of rage and hate, Bat twisted to safety between her boots. 
She pressed with thumb and forefinger, firing at the space halls. The material turned to powdery flakes of ash, except for certain bits which still flapped from the scorched seat, as if something had protected them from the force of the blast. Bats sprang straight in the air with a scream that tore their ears. What? began Cliff again. Stina made a warning motion with her left hand. Wait. She was still tense, still watching Bat. The cat dashed madly around the cabin twice, running crazily with white-ringed eyes and flecks of foam on his muzzle. Then he stopped abruptly in the doorway, stopped and looked back over his shoulder for a long, silent moment. He sniffed delicately. Stina and Cliff could smell it too now, a thick, oily stench, which was not the usual odor left by an exploding blaster shell. Hey, we got some action. That quickly ended. (laughs) Bat raised his head as he passed Stina, and then he went confidently beyond to sniff, to sniff and spit twice at the unburned strips of the space hall. Having thus paid his respects to the late enemy, he sat down calmly and set to washing his fur with deliberation. Whatever it was, she killed this thing. Yeah, I thought that was kind of strange. She doesn't know anything about this creature. It didn't do anything malicious. It just walked around. She just murdered it. (laughs) Was that kind of strange? I did find that strange, yeah. Now, Bat gives the all clear, and Cliff wants to know what the hell is going on. And this is the big reveal. Gray, she said dazedly. It must have been gray, or I couldn't have seen it like that. I'm colorblind, you see. I can only see shades of gray. My whole world is gray. Like bats, his world is gray too, all gray. But he's been compensated, so he can see above and below our range of color vibrations, and apparently, so can I. Mm. So that's what was going on, if that makes sense. (laughs) Pretty sure that's not how color works. I might be wrong, and I'm sure our listeners will correct me, but anything that is above the ultraviolet spectrum, it'll look white to us, and anything that's infrared will look black. We can't perceive a, a, a color It'll either look white or black to us. But it's still physical matter that would be blocking your vision from seeing other things. It would create shadows. So it wouldn't be invisible. No. I'm not sure what that was all about. I think that was maybe a a poor understanding of science by the author. Not to criticize, but I just did. (laughs) Now, when it passed in front of the space halls, she could see the shape of it and then she shot it. Yeah. Somehow the space halls were a different color, a different shade that made it visible. I mean, people have come to this ship and disappeared or come back crazy and said they didn't want to go back. So clearly something bad happened there. So I guess that's why she knew it was hostile. But But, the data, I mean, it could have been something left over afterwards or whatever. And all it was really doing was looking at some jewelry on the bed. And then it it went into the, the other room. I guess she thought it was lurking behind Cliff. That was one thing that I could have, I would have felt better about in the stories. We had some assurance of its malevolence. Yes. I also like how the handicap is revealed at the same time. The quote unquote handicap uh, (laughs) is revealed at the, revealed, you know, so we know what it is at the same time that it proved to be useful. Right. I feel like there could have been some setup for this, like when they were in the space bar earlier, maybe they ordered Mexican food and there was a green and a red salsa. One was really hot. One was just kind of sweet, and she picked the wrong one and got burnt and said, gosh darn it, I don't know how I'll ever function with this color blindness or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) But apparently, maybe the reason she didn't do that is because she's really ashamed of this handicap. Because when she realizes it helped her, it says, her voice quavered, and she raised her chin with a new air Cliff had never seen before. A sort of proud acceptance. She pushed back her wandering (laughs) hair, but... She made no move to imprison it under the heavy net again. So learning to accept her disability has made her into a sort of hot librarian. You know, it unlocked. There you go. That's all it takes. She shakes out the hair and goes, now that I know that 
it's not a disadvantage to be colorblind. I feel I could be a woman. I don't know. <laughs> Cliff laughed a bit shakily. But what was this gray thing? I don't get it. It's invisible because it's a color beyond our range of sight. It must have stayed in here all these years, and it kills. It must, when it's curiosity satisfied. Now, Cliff asks if there are any more, but since the cat seems calm, St uh, Stina says, no, nah, I guess that's the only one. <laughs> okay. I don't think so, but Bat will tell us if there are. So she's just relying on the cat to let them know if there's more invisible jewelry peddlers or whatever this was. <laughs> he can see them clearly, I believe. But there weren't any more. And two weeks later, Cliff, Stina, and Bat brought the Empress into the Lunar Quarantine Station. And that is the end of Stina's story. Because, as we have been told, happy marriages need no chronicles. And Stina had found someone who knew of her gray world, and did not find it too hard to share it with her. Someone besides Bat. It turned out to be a real love match. The last time I saw her, she was wrapped in a flame-red cloak from the looms of Rigel and wore a fortune in Joven rubies blazing on her wrists. Cliff was flipping a three-figure credit bill to the waiter, and Bat had a row of vernal juice glasses set up before him. Just a little family party out on the town. <laughs> That's the end of the story. That's the end of it. It turned out to be a real love match with such a weird change of yeah. style in the story. Uh -huh. There was kind of a gritty, realistic quality to it. You know, this working-class older woman... And then it just sort of ends with, now she's married, so everything's great. She's married and rich. Yeah. It's great. It all worked out for her. I mean, I, my, maybe I was just reading too much into her character in the beginning. I almost feel like the author liked that character, but knew, well, this will be a story like. that the, the gents in the audience will like. So, yeah, where she's married up and. And the guy's rich. And I, I don't know. It was a kind of a bummer of an ending. You know, it's funny. When I don't like the story so much or it doesn't go the way I wanted it to, I kind of feel like I did something wrong. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I do. I do. But I think it's, I feel that way because we do a show and we want it to be entertaining. We want yeah. to talk about good books and good literature. And that's what we're peddling. And so when we do one of these stories that it's not so great, I think that's okay though. Because by covering these stories, we're looking at things that might not be so good and we're able to understand why they're not so good. Yeah. And it makes us appreciate those other stories, the ones that are really good, more because we understand why they're good or what's good about them. And I, I think that's important for doing any kind of literary criticism. No, you're right. And, and you know, it's it mimics the real process of reading where you crack something open and you don't know what you're going to get. No. And, and sometimes it's not it's not great. And I'm not saying that this doesn't have seeds of some amazing stuff in it. I mean, mm. it really feels like a cool Star Warsy, oh yeah, swashbuckling space adventure with a really neat main character. I just think that it's more of a draft or a, you know, mm. it just feels a little unfinished, and it was a rushed kind of pat conclusion that I thought was kind of a bummer. Also, I felt like at least have one other scene with the monster that shows its power and menace. Yes, so exactly. that I could appreciate her defeating it. Because as mm -hmm. it was right now, I mean, have you ever watched a movie and, and there's a monster walking and the hero just comes up behind him and knocks him out? Yeah, thank God he did that before I found out what that monster could do. Like, that's never happened. <laughs> that will, It will happen in the very beginning of a story to show that the character is a badass. That's the only point of something like that. But if you, you want to show real menace, you got to show the thing is, in fact, a menace and that it does bad stuff. And yeah. its power has to be on display right. for us to go, oh, boy, that's a challenge. How's she gonna overcome that? But we don't even we don't even know if the thing was really a challenge. It's invisible. I mean, I guess that's a challenge. There's formula in things, and you know it's formula, but you still need to have it. Like 
in a James Bond movie, when Q sets up the car and says it's got smoke bombs, you know, it's got machine guns in front and it can go underwater, you go, I'm going to see all of those things happen. Yeah. And if they don't happen, you'd be like, why did you set it up? You know, it's Chekhov's gun or whatever you call it. It's the idea that you set this thing up and then you got to use it. With this monster, I wanted to see why it was... You know, you set up that there was a creature in there. You set up that the Empress of Mars was haunted by this creature. Yeah. And I just really wanted to know what the specificity of the menace was. Also that it was like while she was in the room going through the treasure, that's a little odd. Why didn't it attack her? Yeah. A problem would have been solved if they had a, a third or fourth character, if you don't, if you count the cat. Somebody that could have been fodder for this thing that you would have been able to see, oh my gosh, it pounced on this dude and messed him up. Or killed this guy. One of the doors opened and a woman came out and she's like, what's up, guys? I'm the Empress of Mars. And then it just got killed her. You're like, oh, no. <laughs> that was the Empress of Mars. <laughs> that mystery solved. I'm just spitballing here, man. I'm just spitballing. Yeah, I know. No, that's <laughs> I, I, that's great. That would have been the best choice for sure. I think so. No, And it's, you know, it's easy, obviously, to, to pick something apart that somebody else has written. You know, I like... The telling of the story, it was a fun read, yeah. and it's quite short, so I don't I don't not recommend it. Oh, no. I'd say dig into it and, and check out this whole anthology, The Future is Female, because we're going to continue doing some stories from yes. that. Next week, we're going to be covering a story called The Conquest of Gola by Leslie F. Stone. And I believe that's in the genre of a planet that's all female or ruled by all women. Yes. Which Uh was a very popular genre in the 50s uh, for films like Queen of Outer Space. Mm -hmm. I think that that story was written earlier than the 50s, but we'll get into all of that business uh, next week. Hey, I want to thank our reader, Andrew Staten. I do too. Thanks for joining us once again, Andrew. Always a pleasure. Again, you can find him under Strength24 on Twitch, where he streams indie horror games Thursday evenings, 8 p.m. Pacific time. Get on chat. Try to scare him. You might witness him poop in his pants. Oh. That was a weird sound you made in reaction to that. (laughs) (laughs) I want to thank our stakers. Yes, thank you to our stakers. They are the ones that make these free shows possible. Again, if you like these shows, you want to subscribe. That's what keeps us going without our subscribers. We can't proceed, so please go to patreon.com slash witchhousemedia. Keep us in business. If you do enjoy these free shows, the people you have to thank for it are the following crypto cartographer. Alistair Brooks, thank you. The Twins, thank you. Angelina Brown, thank you. Evan, thank you so much. And lastly, Eric Street Pizza Gordon, thank you so <laughs> much for your support. Thank you guys so much for keeping the show alive. We're going to be back with The Conquest of Gola next week. Until then, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories at strangestudies.com and Patreon. Strange Studies of Strange Stories. <laughs>